music, news, interviews, live events, and more. Welcome to the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. I'm with Ian Asbury of the Cult. And, and uh, other things. Yeah, and many other projects as well. Mm. It's Matt Pinfield. This is the Hivecast. Ian, I want to talk to you. I mean, I've been friends with you a long time and a fan even longer. Yes. And um, But I'd like to talk about uh, one of the things that I found interesting was that you lived for a very young period of your life in Canada for a while. I think you lived That's for like 10 years in, somewhere in Ontario. Was very, it very Hamilton? important. Another important subtext to Asprey and the cult. Um, I moved to Hamilton when I was a kid, when I was 11. You moved from to the 11. UK. I moved from the UK to Canada, southern Ontario. I lived 30 miles, 35 miles from Buffalo. So all the culture was coming in from radio, from TV, sports, you name it. It was all coming from New York State. So to me, New York City was Mecca, and the Empire State Building, Yeah, that was like ground zero for me. That was a culturally represented, you know, I had this vision of New York City being this holy city from about the age of 11 or 12. And then when I went back to Britain, my mother had cancer, so we went back to Britain right at the height of punk rock, and she, she wanted to die with her family, so we went back to Britain, and I had no real cultural connection to the UK after that. I was definitely a North American person you know, real culturally North American. And um, it's very difficult, but a lot of what I brought back from kind of Canadian, North American, U.S. culture was like, I mean, seeing things like the New York Dolls and Don Christian's Rock Concert when I was like 12 years old. Yeah, I remember. Alice Cooper, early Alice Cooper. Yeah, when he did uh, that concert in, in concert on ABC, right? What, I'm sorry? You probably watched them on In Concert in ABC. No, no, no. When, when did you see him? Don Christian's Rock Concert. Oh, he was on there too as yeah. well. Yeah, Don Christian's Rock Concert, 1974, yeah. I think it was. Yeah. But that blew my mind. I mean, and then obviously being exposed to things like things that you wouldn't get on the radio in the UK, like the Bowie Berlin records or the Iggy records, the things that were like only on FM radio. You had to like, because we had FM radio, we didn't have FM radio in the UK. We had it in, like in Canada, we had an amazing FM station from Buffalo as well. We would play albums in their entirety. So I really discovered a lot of music through FM radio. What kind of things were there besides, like, you mentioned the Bowie and Iggy Rose. Well, besides, I mean, obviously punk rock, um, you know, with the Pistols and the Clash. I heard that on FM radio for the first time. And then probably things like, you know, like maybe bands like Suicide. Yeah. Um, and even, like, some progressive stuff, like progressive rock bands, like maybe, um, you know, like Pink Floyd's Animals record. I mean, I remember going to a stadium when I was a kid with my brother collecting bottles. Pink yeah. Floyd were playing at our local stadium, doing the Animals tour. Yeah, we went down there. To, we didn't. We didn't. We're kids, right? We're teenagers. We didn't. We didn't have any money to get into the gig, but we were collecting bottles outside. You know, because wow. there's so many bottles, and they were like five cents each. So we went yeah. down there to collect bottles. And, and, and actually, money. saw look through the these gates of the stadium when the airplane crashed into the stage. Yeah, which is awesome. But it, it, it was interesting at that time because music wasn't as tribal as it is now. It wasn't as kind of like sect, uh, you know, orientated. It was like. If you're into rock and roll, that meant you were into everything. It meant you were into R and B, meant you were into like, you know, blues, um, meant you. Were, I mean, you were just into music. Period. That was yeah. it. I had no discretion. I had no problem buying music from any different genre. Yeah. You know, but principally, my main driving force was always Bowie. Yeah. Who's like, of course one of the greatest. Bowie devotee, you say. Yeah. From at the age of ten. Yeah, that's both of us around the same age too. I think so. for me it was. What's that? Twenty-seven. Yeah. <laughs> at eleven. I discovered uh, Bowie. Well, I've heard, I heard, believe it or not, I heard Rebel Rebel first and then went back. I bought Life on Mars. Was, yeah. Life on Mars was the first Bowie single I bought. Yeah. And what a great song. It was the first single I bought, period. So you were here when he did the... You, what year did you move to... Well, we came to the first... You know, I lived in Canada until about 1978, and then we moved back to the UK. 
And then we first started playing in the United States in 1984. We played Dan Soteria. Two nights yeah. at Dan Soteria, Puerto Rican dance As night. Death Cult or Southern Death Cult? As, as the cult. Yeah. 1984. We just oh, we right. became yeah. the cult in January 84 and we played... We were with the Crescent Moon Agency. Ruth Polsky is a very, very famous agent from that period. Sad about her. She, yeah, she, she got hit by her. a cab outside the limelight. Yeah. Um, but we came and I mean, we came into the city when it was like, you know, that Basquiat and Warhol were running around. Running around, Max's Kansas City was still open. CBGBs, obviously, and the city was lawless. And you know, probably Madonna was still like a, you know, probably a waitress at, at Danceteria at that time. Yeah. I mean, it was like it was a really very, very different time, and um, you know, it was just. If you're on the street, the energy was so exciting. It was so dangerous. It was so volatile. It was so sexy. And it was really exciting getting caught up in the city. And, and I waited so long to come to New York being a kid growing up that for me, I already had these kind of very romantic notions of New York. And uh, it, it didn't let me down at all. But you so, were, okay, when you moved back, where, 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 uh, where were, you, did you, were you hanging in Liverpool a lot? Where, no, no, I went to, well, I actually I lived stone. across the river from Liverpool, a place called Birkenhead. So when I did go back, I was in Glasgow, Scotland. Yeah. But um, I was, in 1980, I was living in uh, Merseyside, which is near Liverpool, uh, Birkenhead. So across the river, I used to go to a club called Eric's. Got which is that famous club, you know, you know, all those bands from there. Well, it was, like it's Echo, basically it's, teardrop explodes. Well, right? not even bands like I mean, it was the Cavin Complex. It was the yeah. same complex that the Beatles played in on Matthew wow. Street in Liverpool. It's where it's, it's where it all started. Wow. Was Matthew Street? Yeah. It's an old Victorian warehouse cellar, and that's where the Beatles played in the Cavin. And that same complex is where Eric's was located. So I was seeing things like The Cramps yeah, with Brian Gregory, yeah, Psychedelic Furs, yeah, um, bands like Crass. Uh, it was a really amazing time. Yeah. You, know, you were squatting. Johnny Thunders, I saw that. You, you were squatting for a while, too. I squatted for a while. I was, I was actually literally homeless for six months. And that was because of, of an issue with like the landlord or something? Or you used to, you yeah, I had a landlord. Like, well, I got thrown out. I let all my friends stay in, in my, it wasn't even an apartment. It was one room. It was 10 pounds a week, and I went away for a couple of weeks to a punk festival in Belfast, which is actually in the movie Good Vibrations, which just came out recently. Oh, but about Terry the, Hooley and the one you were at? You, I was you, at that show that was in the yeah. movie. In so Dublin, it was like wow. Forest, in, Belfast. In, in Belfast. Belfast, yeah. In Belfast. So I was actually at that show. So I was around all Who the Who played Stiff Little Fingers, things like that, at the time? Yeah, I, would yeah. See, I remember going to see Stiff Little Fingers at Glasgow Apollo in like 1979. I saw the Ramones. Saw the Undertones back then, too? Undertones I never saw. And I've got yeah. to see, but obviously they were like huge. They were a huge pop band. I mean, they're on. They're in the top twenty. Yeah. You know, my perfect cousin and um, it's gonna teenage happen. kicks. Yeah. That was all in the top twenty. Yeah. It's amazing when you look back inside some of that footage now, like Tom. I don't. <laughs> I know. But what if you, what if you see it? I know you, you see do. The Buzzcocks were on there, and oh, the Buzzcocks, yeah. Yeah, they were they, on there a lot. I mean, you know, it, uh, with all this revisionist history going on, like all of a sudden people are claiming real estate that they have absolutely no. Uh, they really have no right to claim. There's all this revisionism going on. Like, I did this, I started that. No, revisionist history. Yeah, 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 where people are kind of claiming space and influence. And it's actually when you go back and you really look at what it was. It's yeah. interesting who was very influential, who dropped out. There was some incredible people around who never made the cut in terms of being in the, the rock and roll encyclopedias or the Wikipedias or whatever. Yeah. But who are uh, some of those people if you, if you look back to I think you. bands like um probably um the pop group ATV yeah. uh Yeah, ATV uh, Love Lies Limp. I yeah, ATV maybe <laughs> bands like the Jurity Column, bands like um magazine, bands like I mean the, the magazine don't get they do not get enough love and I No, they do not some, get enough like love. Like shot by both sides, which shot is shot by both sides is phenomenal. Uh, you know, you know <laughs> permafrost 
Yeah, that's my that's my things favorite. Things like very I mean, we're talking the very first incarnation of Adam and the Ants, pre Kings of the Wild Frontier, what he was doing pre Dirk even pre Sox. even Dirk Wise White Sox. Yeah. Pre pre that album. They were doing a lot of stuff like Red Scab and um for example, and he's touring that right now and he's playing a lot of the older songs. But he was he was in the movie Jubilee, Derek Jarman film seventy seven, which was very yeah. influential. I mean, people like George, even things like Seditionaries, the clothing shop that Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren had, you know, in terms of what that was in terms of influence. And I mean, some, maybe some of the other bands like the London SS with Tony James and Mick Jones and Flowers of Romance with Sid Vicious and Susie Sue. There's so many things going on that people aren't even aware of. The one I want is with Joe Strummer. Yeah. There's a whole like pub rock scene. When he was scene. Woody, when he was, when he was called Woody. That's right. Yeah. That's right. After Woody Guthrie. So yeah. there was this whole like kind of pre-scene that happened kind of before punk, around punk and then after punk that was, you know, that has just kind of got washed away and... A lot of great things that you don't, that don't people don't make reference to anymore. Which is sad, but, you know, it'd be great to just do a kind of a, a roadmap that kind of goes off the major freeways a little bit. Yeah. And you can see some... This band um, uh, that I used to love, um, TV Personalities. Oh, yeah, they were a great band too, yeah. They're incredible songwriters. yeah. yeah. Uh, Spiz Energy. Yes, and who was, was Spiz Oil too? Spiz Oil, Spiz AE. Yeah, he, all those Spizzes. Um, which were incredible. Um, there was a lot and going on. And you mentioned on. the pop group, We Are All Prostitutes. Ba- was about, all yeah, the, yeah, We Are All Prostitutes, too, the pop group. I mean, people like, um, you know, Pete Burns before he became Right Round Baby, Right Round. He was in a band called Nightmares and Wax. Yeah. And you want to talk about the history of death rock and, and kind of gothic rock, which is it, probably Kanye West has more and Givenchy have more to homage to this guy forget rick owens and all those guys pete burns in 1979 was running around looking like he came out of uh the, the plains of the, the the great western plains he was covered in feathers black face paint he looked unbelievable and he had a band called nightmares and wax in liverpool there's another band called pink military which were amazing amazing band they had a song called uh, an album called do animals believe in god yeah which is I remember. A stunning record, which I actually found on vinyl like two years ago, and I got this record and I put it on. And my God, my God, I, the genius of this! Yeah, the genius. They bring of you this. back to remember the first time you heard those records. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The environments. I mean, it was, I was hearing a lot of those records around Liverpool, and and also you got to appreciate there was no internet. You were basically discovering records by going to record shops. Yeah. And asking, usually you'd ask whoever's behind the counter, like, what have you got, what's new? Yeah. I'll go through the bins, find out, look at covers. And if the cover looked cool, or, or you saw it in the back of somebody's jacket. Yeah. Be like, what's that? You know, cool. yeah. and that's with your education, the back of people's jackets at punk shows. So yeah, you, know. you check out stuff. And it's really we were kids. Way. I mean, we were literally kids, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. Yeah, you know, we were, we were babies. How old were you when you and Billy met? Well, I started in some death court when I was nineteen. Yeah. So by the time I was twenty, twenty-one, I was already a veteran. Yeah. And people say, well, why didn't you keep that sound going? Because in my mind, we'd done it. Yeah. We'd done what it's supposed to do. I mean, punk rock, in my mind, it was supposed to be DIY, dilettante. Yeah. You know, it was supposed to be unaccomplished. It was about the moment. It's about the instant. Yeah. It was about being an amateurish player, you know, reaching for things that would be on your reach. Because once you start getting good, yeah. and technically you kind of become a different, you move to a different level, which is kind of what the cult did. We were aspiring to other things. We went from punk to blues to Led Zeppelin to... You know, it was all very from Joy Division to Let's Up. Yeah. <laughs> and then back again. Yeah. You know, so, um, but some Death Corps was 19. I met Billy probably when I was like, probably like 1920. He was he was in Theatre of Hate. Yeah. He was actually the original guitar player in Theatre of Hate. What's his name? Kirk. Uh, Kirk Brandon. Yeah. He did Spear of Destiny. Who, yeah. They were, I mean, they were like big noise yeah. back then. They would, they'd just come off a massive tour with The Clash. Yeah. And um, actually, some Death Corps, we played with The Clash, we played with Bauhaus. 
Yeah, Theater of Hate. Was he on that record? He Who Dares yep. Wins. Yeah, I He Who Dares Wins. Yeah. I, 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 when I was going through vinyl, I found my chill. Yeah, Who Believes in the Westworld, Eastworld, all those songs yeah. are incredible. Incredible records. And um, so we were touring with those guys, and then we actually went from a Theater of Hate tour to Bauhaus tour, and then we went and played with The Clash, and we played with New Order, and we are playing with like, I mean, going to playing festivals like with, you know, Birthday Party and Nick Cave, but et cetera, et cetera. It was, yeah. it was an amazing time. Killing Joke. Yeah. No. Another great band who never got a lot of credit left. Yeah, it's interesting. Kill- well, Killing Joke have had like kind of a renaissance, I think, a little bit. They've had a, a bit of a renaissance. Yeah, they've recently. just put out another, another singles collection. Yeah, so I think that they've kind of kind of reclaimed some turf. Yeah. Which is great. They but, deserve to. They're a great live band. I no, go and see Killing Joke. I remember going to see Killing Joke in 1981, 82. That's when I saw them, too. Yeah, Do you know what's funny, too? Yeah, that's how I got turned on to. They were playing that famous club in Trenton, City Gardens. It was uh, their tour. It, it was either for the. Um, Second album, what's this for? Or the first record, just a Killing Joke record. The one, meaning the album yeah. with De- with Requiem and Change. With Requiem and oh, Change and, and is War unbelievable. Dance. Yeah. Well, you know what's so funny that they said to me, and I love it, is because, you know, I asked them. I was driving. I remember I was driving in a car with Jordy, and with uh, with Jazz, and I said, you know, I go, well, do you guys really wanted the Sue Nirvana for Come As You Are? And they go, well, you know what, E.G. Music, our publishing company, did. They go, but we felt. Once Kurt died there, like, oh, leave these people alone. He said, plus. Well, I don't know about yeah, that. Yeah. You know, I kind of take umbrage with some of that because yeah. with all respect, with I mean this with the utmost respect to Kurt Cobain and a member of Kurt Cobain, and uh, I'm not taking anything away from him, but they did sign to Geffen Records. Yeah. They knew exactly what they were doing. Oh, yeah. If you're going to go on the cover of Rolling Stone yeah. and sign to Geffen Records, yeah. then you're moving into a different space. Yeah. And I think maybe the choice was, that, you know, Perhaps had that they may not made that transition, we wouldn't have got to Nevermind. But I don't know. It's like the punk ethos, the punk ethic, what it was about. It was just, it was really interesting that, you know, like now people talk about them with such reverence. But they did actually go on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. They did sign to Geffen Records yeah. for lots of on money. On the cover of Rolling Stone, though, he did have a great T-shirt on. It said corporate magazine. Great, so, Mark but, you, but you're still on the cover of Rolling Stone. Yeah, no. You could put a... You could put a yeah, he, he wanted the fame no matter what. You know, I, Maybe he didn't want the responsibility, but he definitely was... There you go. It, you know. he, maybe they wanted the fame, but not the responsibility. And um, and I totally believe that, that he was authentic. Yeah. I, I believe he was authentic. He was a real poet, and he really was suffering. And that's not my point. But this idea of, like, we, we're talking about money... And money being equated with integrity and punk yeah. rock ethos, yeah. they crossed the line. Yeah. You know, and it, it, there's nothing wrong with making money as an artist as long as you're going to go out there and not pretend that you're some kind of like, you know, anarcho kind of uh, altruist is going to give all your money to small children and animals. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's okay to make a living at this. It's no, like, you it's, should. it's actually okay. And, artists and, should be paid for their work. Like people and had paid. some of those artists in the yeah. day came out and actually really defended artists making money, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in now with like people like Spotify, yeah, Pandora, yeah. et cetera, and file sharing and all the rest of it. Yeah. And it's not so much about being some greedy. I mean, forget greed. You know, when you've got people like Walter Yetnikoff selling out labels to, you know, from millions and millions and millions of dollars to maintain a cocaine habit. There's a lot more to it. It's it's far more complex yeah. than you could ever imagine. So having been around long enough, and yeah, which is really interesting now because there's very few. I, I hear people talking about, you know, the ethics of punk rock and the ethos of of what it all meant, what it really, really meant in terms of a cultural movement with, with some authority and they weren't, weren't even present. Yeah. Especially no. today. 
So I take great umbrage with that. Yeah. I really do. I understand. And it's interesting when you hear bands like Savages and people are talking about them sounding like Killing Joke and Susan the Banshees. They sound like Southern Death Cult. Yeah. They sound like nothing like those bands. They sound exactly like Southern Death Cult with a singer who looks like Ian Curtis. And also, the bass player wears a Led Zeppelin t-shirt. But I guess that's okay now. Yeah. It wasn't okay for us. Yeah. (laughs) It was, We got destroyed by the enemy. They could not work that out. What, what you mean when when you made the jump from it wasn't uh, a jump yeah. it was not a jump yeah. there wasn't like this it wasn't overnight. a jump you just you just started no no, doing no. it wasn't like this overnight shift it was yeah. like something that was in the in the we were going to clubs called like Alice in Wonderland in London where they would play um, you know nuggets yeah they play all the psych punk bands they were great and literally you'd stand at the bar at the bar was Blixer Bargeld Nick Cave you know Jeffrey Lee Pierce Robert Smith Steve Severin Susie Sue. Yeah. The damned, yeah. all sitting at the bar, yeah. standing at the bar, holding themselves up at the bar. Yeah. And it's a tiny club. And when I mean tiny, it's like hold 150 people. I also wonder. That's, yeah. that's where Naz Nomad and Nightmares come out of. That's yeah. where the glove came out of. Yeah. So there's this kind of like transition between punk and psych. Yeah. And psych was the conduit to, through Lenny Kay's Nuggets, that was the conduit to punk, 60s punk, into like... Early Led Zeppelin, Blue yeah. Cheer, yeah, Stooges. There was this kind of transitional because when you actually look at Led Zeppelin, the first two albums, yeah, they were a punk band. They were, they, are, they yeah. were a punk rock band, no yeah. doubt. Yeah, absolutely. They were violent. Communication breakdown and Living it's, Love and Mater ripping. Are you kidding it. me? Yeah, it's true. They were like ripping it to shreds, and they weren't caring about making money. They were kids. They were just playing music. Yeah. So there's there's something to be said for that. So I'd like to you know kind of get some of these sit down with some of these revisionists and like. Yeah. Well, you and I were around for the stuff, and we saw the difference. We also know that a lot of people don't realize how divisive a lot of the music was from people that liked mainstream music. You know, it was real. It could be a real us and them mentality. No, it was us and them. It was was completely us and them. them. It was us and them. I said, yeah, and I noticed that. You wouldn't hear the Ramones or the Pistols at a sporting event. No, it wasn't used. It wasn't used to sell to sell running shoes. And at that point, it was like you would never see a pair of like you'd never see the Sex Pistols and a pair of Converse in 1978. It just wasn't wasn't what it was about. But Again, it was it wasn't because people were like self consciously trying to be different or anti anything. Yeah. It was just you were being what you were. You came out working you know, like now it's very you know, it's it's like as an artist you're like, you know, if you kinda of wear your badge of honor you came out of the ghetto. It's like it's yeah. a badge of badge of honor. I mean the talk about ghettos inner city Glasgow in the seventies. Yeah. <laughs> it was outrageous. It was incredibly violent, incredibly dangerous. And um, and a lot of the music came out of those areas. Yeah, a lot of great and, uh, stuff too. Yeah, and and there's another thing was there was this there wasn't this kind of racial distinction between black and white. It was just if you're a punk, you're a punk. Yeah, didn't matter what your ethnicity was, what your sexual orientation was. If you're a punk, you're a punk. Period. Yeah. And also then the other thing was when when hip hop really started to kind of bubble under. If you liked hip hop, you're punk. And that was okay too, because we completely identified. We did with, with that social group. And and then when we did come to America, we started meeting hip hop artists, especially being around Def Jam, you know, in '86 when we did Electric. Yeah, there was it, absolutely no cultural disparity. Yeah, between like when I met Ella Cool J when I was 19, we were just musicians. We were into what we were into. That was it. There was no like you're a rocker. I'm into it, but there was just like we were all like same age. Yeah, and we were just into what we were into, and we all influenced each other. It's true, and you know, speaking of that, we brought up Killing Joke. 
Yeah. What I said, what I was going to say in the, at the end of that story, so I could just share it with you, is that they said to me, "Well, you know, look, our song change was definitely war. It was me and baby brother. So they had used me and maybe baby brother. For no, 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 not that. It goes around. And then what I wanted to let you know is how I discovered Grandmaster Flesh, the message, one of my favorite records of all time that year mm. was. I was invited up into the dressing room to, to have Jack Daniels with uh, the Killing Joke guys and just hang out with them. They were smoking spliffs, and they were playing on a boombox the message, dancing around to it after their show. We used to play We used to play NWA <laughs> before we used to go on stage, and we used to play Beastie Boys before we go on stage. We'd always play hip-hop before we go on stage. That's what That was our war music. Yeah. That's what got us pumped. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so this is really interesting. Again, this other revisionist thing happening with hip-hop. When you got Kanye West going out and saying... I am Kurt Cobain, I am Jim Morrison, I am Axl Rose. Yeah. I am a god. Like, wow, that's some statement. Yeah. You know, in the sense of like using these these strong like punk rock and and, and rock and roll icons yeah. as this, the benchmark of the dilettante, anarchist, nonconformist, lead singer, you know, archetype. And yeah. he identifies with that and he identifies with them because they really were the ones who were like like I said, you know, Kurt Cobain, I'm not taking away from the Geffen thing, but he was um, he was authentic. Yeah. He was completely authentic. Yes. You know, and they crucified him. Yeah. Which when is you, a travesty. When you said the, the NME were, because were, 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 obviously, a lot of those magazines weren't nice to a lot of bands, or they built them up. And then well, let's, the first of all, let's, let's get it clear. These are yeah. writers. They're not musicians. Yeah, yeah exactly. Or failed musicians. Yeah. They didn't have the balls or the guts to see it all the way through. Yeah. So they hid behind the pens. And became intellectual bullies. And no matter what they may say, or any of them, whether yeah. it's Pitchfork, The Enemy, or whoever, yeah, it's a different place to be is one thing is being an observer and a cultural critic, whereas you're actually you know, a performer and a writer. Then you're in the hot seat. Yeah. Then you live and die by the sword. So from that point of view, when I came out, I mean, I came from North America. I had, like, I had black music influences. I had punk music influences. I had Native American influences. And I came out, I was covered in feathers and paint and I was into what I was into and um, they looked at me and it was just like one one editorial said something like this this kid's mother must have been sniffing glue when she gave birth to him you know yeah, Jesus and actually Christ. my mother died of cancer on my 17th birthday so that really struck me pretty hard I'd be pissed off well it hurt yeah. it really hurt I mean that was the first time I'd really been fuck that writer right written away. about well I'd been written it was actually a woman called Barbara Ellen who write, yeah. right now writes for The Guardian I think one of the reasons she wrote that was because she wasn't getting any action off the band yeah but um which is probably true but you know again this kind of who's doing the revisionism it's not the musicians that are doing the revisionism no. it's these people who are putting themselves in a, in a cultural position you know like when um when Bang Fong Tong Torres did The Doors book yeah uh, recently Jim yeah. Morrison book for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and all that they failed to ask my opinion because my opinion wasn't what they wanted. Really? They didn't want to hear my opinion. Well, they heard it, but they didn't want to print so it. So they didn't print it in there? They want to print it. didn't fit with their their agenda. So what was the deal? So what was your opinion? What did you say? Because obviously you were the first choice of a singer to perform with because you went with Ray and with Robbie. With those guys, it was a 12-year courtship. Yeah, and I it brought you on stage that time at that show at Roseland. That's where you and I were, we were talking yeah. about stage. I remember That's right. that. You know? It's a 12-year courtship. And what I really, the picture I was sharing with them was like the human being, what they were like as people, as human beings. Yeah. You know, like what they were like as kids, what they were like as human beings, because that's the energy I got off those guys. And that I, didn't fit the myth for them. Well, when you're, when you're strange, that documentary, I thought actually finally 
dealt with. Did you like that documentary? No, no, no. I thought the documentary was, was really banal. It was just yeah. boring. The best thing in that documentary... Was the footage you'd never seen before. Was the footage yeah. where they interviewed Jim's father. Yeah. Now, that is that gets you in the gut. Yeah. When you see the Admiral talking about his son. Yeah. He's talking about his child. Yeah. Not talking about Jim Morrison, rock star. He's talking about Jim Morrison, his son. Yeah. I thought it was the most powerful material. But the producers, for some reason, didn't have the balls to put that in the documentary. Right. Speaking to family members, we've never seen Andy and Ann and Jim, his father, his, his father and his mother, speak about you know, the relationship with their son and what it was like for them. And close friends. A lot yeah. of close friends that never were interviewed. It, we all know the story. You yeah. know, Doors, Doors fans, Doors aficionados all know the story. It's almost like the Bible. Yeah. It is for Doors fans. Yeah. Everybody knows the story. You know, how he came yeah. to Venice Beach. How is it, you know, UCLA with Ray. Da, 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 da. Yeah. You know, the Miami trials. We all know this. Pelichers, Paris, the final days. It's epic. Yeah. I mean, it's epic. It's 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 a huge... I mean, that story people will be telling in a thousand years. It's the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. What was the first mm-hmm. door, the door song that you heard that struck you? I think the first thing I heard by the Doors was Riders on the Storm when I was about 10. Yeah. And I heard it on Radio Luxembourg. And I remember it very distinctly because it sounded very different than all the pop music of the day. Yeah. It didn't sound like the glam pop that was coming out of the UK. It was something very different and very ethereal and mystical and yeah. had a different... Um, quality to it so but I mean being struck by his ten, and then I would hear bits of the doors kind of growing up you know on FM radio here like light my fire or something like that but I didn't really connect with it it was just kind of like another sound that was amongst but it's always kind of this ghostly different sound it wasn't really until I was about two bottles of wine and some um, substances into halfway through apocalypse now yeah when the end when yeah, I heard when I heard the end and that's when I was like oh uh, is a baptism yeah and then from that point in i went so deeply into it i went yeah. very very deeply into it you once said to me you and i were backstage we, we, you know when you're going out right before you're going on with the guys and i remember yeah. you said to me um that when you first went on there because you had so much respect for jim in the past yeah you were you're almost like, like you stand at a podium and, but then Ray i had, did have a podium you had a podium and you were really <laughs> I, had, I had a music stand <laughs> yeah with and i was trying to do like some sort of oratory with the with this Rever- reverential respect. I was thinking of it in the sense of like the way a classical musician would play a, a you know a body of work by a classical composer. So that was my kind of take on it. And they, and were, they, like, told you, they, t- they were like, "Will you get rid of that thing? Yeah. Just be perform. Yeah, just go inside, you know, yourself, and and just drop all of it. Yeah, and that's what eventually happened. And that, that's what you told me when when we were talking about it. And, and they yeah. said, you know, really embrace the feeling of this. That's what they wanted. Yeah. They want me to completely embrace it and and to drop any kind of yeah cognitive associative you know thing with it and which was eventually what happened and, and the material became so deeply ingrained in my marrow yeah that there was no you know this kind of commentary about it being some sort of pastiche or a yeah. tribute or an homage yeah it wasn't i was very reverential i knew that spot well is indelibly ingrained and marked with you know james douglas morrison's uh spirit yeah and I was very aware of that. I was never trying to, I would never lord about or do one-upmanship in that. I was never trying to, in fact, when the limelight came on, I would step out of the way, let let Ray and Robbie, yeah. push them to the foreground, yeah. which they were reluctant to do. They kept pushing me forward and saying, no, 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 this is the time when you, this is your legacy, this is your body of work. Yeah. And I pushed them forward in interviews. Mm-hmm. And uh, strangely enough, when Stuart Copeland was playing with them for five shows, 
whenever there was a question asked and the microphone came out, yeah. he would take the microphone and ask the question for them. Yeah. And I would stand back a bit and just go. Was it fun playing with Stuart and those guys at the Stuart, same time? Stuart is an incredible what a musician. Yes. He's a brilliant intellect, but he's an arrogant cock. <laughs> is he really? You when you're standing with Ray Manzarek and Robbie Krieger, yeah. you know where you stand. Yeah. You don't stand. I, there was there was a little tension between Ben Folds and Ray Manzarek that night, one night at that Roseanne show because- Well, actually yeah, not really. There was a bit more going on than that. Ben Folds came out like he owned the joint. Yeah. And it wasn't his stage. It was Manzarek and Krieger's stage. Yeah. And he came out like he owned the joint and bitch got served. Yeah. He really did. Yeah, because I know there was still- Didn't even speak to me. I knew didn't there... speak to me, didn't acknowledge me, didn't look at me. I just stared him down. He didn't like it. Wow. It was it was not his place. And was that the night? That was the night? Yeah, that yeah. was the night. And, but the weird thing was that we were very open. It wasn't like we were being, you know, cocks or anything. I mean, like I was totally like there with his crew, with his people. I mean, it was wonderful opportunity. And maybe he was just intimidated. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. But it's amazing how people can trip out. People get tripped out about things. We're just human beings, yeah. for God's sakes. It was sad about Ray uh, losing Ray. Did it's you a know travesty. Ray, well, did you know Ray was sick with cancer? Oh, I, knew very, I knew very intimately he was sick with cancer because my manager, Tom Vittorino, yeah. was the individual who got Ray into treatment in Germany. It wasn't the Doors management. It yeah. wasn't any of the Doors members. It wasn't any of the immediate family. It was, it was Tom Vittorino speaking to, to Ray every day. So he got him to go to Germany for some of that special he got him treatment. To, he found the clinic and got him to Germany. Because a lot of people were going there for that. In fact, he even took care of his funeral, wow. which the Doors management didn't. In fact, the Doors management was selling T-shirts of Ray Manzarek when his, when his wake was happening. That's, that's, that's a travesty. That's the, rea that's the reality. That's unbelievable. That is, that is, oh, and, and, Jim Mar and the Jim Morrison Young Lion plastic beads. Really? They were yeah. selling no, them? No, selling them now on the website. But these are these. Most people don't want to talk about these things. They just. I love that you tell the truth. You've always been. Well, honest. it is the truth. It's you know? the truth, and we got to get some of this this rose tinted. Yeah. Let's let's cut to the and revisionist history. We don't have time for it anymore. We yeah. really don't have time. No, we don't. The culture is is, is falling in on itself. It's this well, is why I love the fact that we have black militant music now. Yeah. Again, you know, African American mu militant music like White Mandingos, Kanye did the Black Skinhead. Yeah, you know, Odd Future, ASAP. Yeah, uh, you know, we're seeing more and more kind of yeah. really powerful deaths. The band Deaths. Yeah, recently revitalization, and yeah. these guys are coming out and they're claiming the space which is rightfully theirs. Yeah, and schooling everybody else. Yeah, so I'm so grateful that they're, they're in the room. I think it's great. Too. It's very exciting. Now we were talking about when you first came here in '84. Yes. All right, and you, you got the. How long were you here? How many shows did you do for for Dreamtime when you came over? Oh, when we. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Can we cuss on the radio? Yes, you oh, can um, say whatever you want. The first thing anybody ever said to me was coming out of the Algonquin Hotel. Is this like guy, Derek guy, around the street? And he looks up at me. And goes, he goes, "Hey, boy, George, motherfucker." He's looking at me. I was like, "This is so exciting." Yeah. And. uh we did that. That was the very first thing anybody said to me in the street in New York. And, um, <laughs> boy, George, motherfucker. You go, boy, George, motherfucker. <laughs> and I was like, this is so cool. You know, this is, I was like, this is great. Uh, but we went and did about, I want to say, there's, there's so much stuff in here for you. I know. I Cultural sandwich. Because um, I love, well, Spirit we did about, Resurrection Joe. We did about know. 15, 18 shows. Yeah. But some of the great things on that tour was we went to LA and we got to stay in the Tropicana Motel. 
which was right next to the Doors lab where they recorded LA Woman, where they did their offices were, right next to the LTC Enigo Hotel. It was all standing. Uh, the, the place where they used to go for breakfast was still standing. Yeah. It's all knocked down now. And that place was full of hookers and drug dealers. So yeah. we were hanging out with all these prostitutes all day long and didn't quite realize that these girls were, were prostitutes. Yeah. And they were really nice and they were lovely and we, gave them, we shared cigarettes and drinks. And I thought, these girls are really nice. Yeah. And there's nothing salacious or weird. They were a little bit older than us. So I was like just hanging out with these hookers all day at the pool, yeah. you know, right where Morrison used to hang out. Yeah. And it was really nice. We like have a couple of beers and a couple of ciggies and just sit around the pool. And I had no idea what was going on until it was pointed out to me. It's like, this is where everybody comes for the hookers and the drugs. We're like, this is dope. Yeah. Um, we played at the, uh, the anti-club on 1984. We played at the anti-club on Melrose. And Perry Farrell's first band up before was Panic Button or whatever they were called. Yeah. Psycom, the one after that? Psycom before yeah, that, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. I think, yeah was button. it either Psycom or Panic Button? Yeah. It was Panic Button, yeah, before Psycom, they, yeah. They played with us. Yeah. Which puts things in the correct perspective. Yeah. The correct order of things. Yes. Right? Yeah. They opened for you guys. <laughs> I remember I saw you guys at Irvine Meadows uh, at Irvine Amphitheater. Just established these later. facts, sir. So. You know? The chicken and the egg. Yeah. But yeah, yeah you know, well, let's talk about... Love, you re, you did those love shows. We did the full album of love before you do this current tour for Electric 13. Are we talking and, about like when we went, when we came and did the love when we got the CMJ award for She Saw Sanctuary presented by Yoko Ono at the, yeah. at the, the Apollo Theater, etc.? Yeah, because that's a great Saturday thing. Night Live, blah, blah, Let's blah. Let's tell everyone about because I think that's great. And that record was starting oh, yeah. to finish. We, you know. that, that period was insane. I mean, we were, we were the indie college darlings of the moment. We had a top 40 hit single in, in Seattle. Was she still Sanctuary? Sanctuary was a top 40 hit. The only city in the whole country where... The Sire put it out as a seven. Where Love was a hit yeah. was Seattle. And everybody who was anybody at Se in Seattle, like five, eight, six, was at that show. Yeah. All the uh, grunge bands in Seattle. They were all there. Yeah. And that came from Andrew Wood told me that, who was the lead singer of Mother Love Bone that became Pearl Jam. Yeah. And people like Jeff Amet and, you know, Chris Cornell and... Etc. Yeah. Etc. Et yeah. And we did have a song on the album called Nirvana. Yeah. But I digress. Yeah. We actually have a song called Savages on, on our second to last record. Yeah. We're actually going to do it. Hey, I love Hollow Man too. I'm glad. We were actually going to do an article on uh, for. In fact, the enemy wanted to do an article, like give us a, like a little bit, break a little bread with us, and give us a quarter page article on bands that have bands names that are from cult songs. Yeah. How many? Uh, <laughs> how many bands? How many bands are there? There's a few. Well, there's two Nirvana savages, but I'm sure they didn't take it for yeah. from the cult. I mean, yeah. these are these are household names, cults, yeah, yeah. Zzz, cults, yeah. So there, yeah, exactly. Whatever. It's just. It's I mean, cool. it's just. But love was love was a big breakthrough record for you guys here in the, in the college radio and the alternative. In college and alternative, it was massive. I and mean, we were we were an indie band. We were yeah. literally an indie band. I mean, we did get signed by Sire by Seymour Stein, who signed Ramones and Talking Heads and The Cure and Madonna, Madonna. and stuff. But um, we were an indie band. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And then when you guys ended up doing Electric, you went to work with Rick Rubin here in New York City, Electric uh -huh. Ladyland. Yeah. And, 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 and then did, you know, Wild When we met Fire, Rick, Love he was in his dorm machine, room. All those classics, right? You so, know, when we met Rick, he yeah. was still in his dorm room at NYU. Tell me, tell us He was in his dorm it. room at NYU. He wasn't Rick Rubin yet. Yeah. He actually had never been in a studio to make a record with anybody. Like, we're talking about going in and recording bass and drums and guitars. He'd never actually recorded live drums before. This was his first real record. It was pre-Slayer. It was pre-Aerosmith. It was pre-all of that. Yeah. Think about that. That's amazing. And I was on the yeah. phone with Rick the other day. 
Yeah. We did an interview with Rick the other day, and and he's actually saying all this stuff. And for the first time in like 25 years, it was authenticated by the man himself. Yeah. He's getting some kind of validation. It's which great. was like really, and people say, should that matter? And, and actually, when you've taken the kind of beating yeah. for so many years, like being in a cult is like, you're become a target, especially me. Yeah. They definitely came after me with knives. But guys like me who are radio guys and music guys. Well, you're into really, you're really into this. What? I loved the cult. This matters to you. Yeah, it does. It, it does matter. Honestly. It matters to you. I'm not trying to impress people by insulting others like in that. No, no. If I love something, I'm very honest and open yeah, yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I care about something. And I love those records and saw all those tours. So it was. Uh, we it lived was, and loved time. and lost through all those. That means that, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a lifestyle choice. I don't yeah. do this. I don't do this to make a bloody living. Yeah. I wouldn't do this to make a living. I just got my first royalty check from Beggar's Banquet this year. Yeah. What do you mean? Like, yeah. I'm still renting, for God's sakes. Now, let me ask you a question with electric. <laughs> since you're doing electric in its entirety, and then you're doing a songs from all the other albums in a second set during yeah. this tour, will we be, will we see the same uh, tour for Sonic Temple at some no. point as well? Oh, no, no, I hope not. I don't. I don't yeah. think. I mean, there was some question about electric. Yeah. Electric really came by popular demand and Billy really driving it the agenda. Yeah. Plus, we were in between albums. And the whole thing was, if we don't play, we split up. We just yeah. disappear. And we really needed to get together. We really need to go out and play. We really need to keep this together, especially have a choice of weapon. And John, John and John Tempesta still with you guys, right? Absolutely, John and Chris. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's, this is the longest yeah. lineup you've ever lineup had, right? we've ever, ever had. And Tempesta's a great drummer, too. He's an animal. You know, seeing him, you know... He's an absolute animal. Do you know, you know every time I see him, our big joke is because I was at, at one of these MTV events... That I had to, I, I had taken care of the bands backstage with White Zombie, and I took pictures <laughs> with his portable camera. And, I'm like, and he's like, "Matt, you got those pictures?" I'm like, "They're still in storage, but I'm going to give you, to, give them to you on the 25th anniversary." So 25 years later, you're getting those pictures. But we kid about it all the uh -huh. time. I love John. No, John. John's. I mean, John grew yeah. up in the Bronx. Yeah. Chris grew up in Queens. Yeah. Billy grew up in like Salford in Manchester. Yeah. And Withenshaw in Manchester. I grew up in Liverpool and Glasgow and, and Hamilton. It's, these are it's a steel city. Yeah. No Greg Poupon for us, darling. Yeah. One last question, though, because I know you got to head out, Ian. So are you, are you, do you do play in a soccer league now? Do you play with Billy and play soccer out there with Steve no, Townsend? No, that's, that's not talking about Is any of that sports. stuff true? No, but is any of that's that true? That's not talking about sports. Are you really going on sports now? No, I just wanted to know if you're playing with Steve Jones. Why are you interested in that kind of thing? I, no, do I you just, like men in shorts? Yeah, of course I do. You know that. Forget about soccer. Who cares about soccer? Okay. I mean, I love soccer, but let's talk about other things. No, let's talk about I, culture. Yeah. Okay. Darling, come yeah. on. All right, so talk about um, crass. What, what's that? Crass. Talk about crass. Yeah, let's talk about that band. Crass. There's you an got into anarchist bands in that period. There's an there's a gallery in New York right now, and I'm trying to wish I remember the name. Yeah. I own a brain fart. Yeah. Who've done an exhibits of crass? Uh, all that artwork. You mean all the sleeves yeah. and all the this was that stuff was great. It's called Boredom Gallery or something. Yeah. But they've and and Penny and G have been coming over and doing, you know, Stephen Grint did the. Went out and did the Last Supper. Yeah, Steve Ignan's been doing a lot of more stuff over here recently. I wish, I really wish, 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 wish so much that people had the opportunity to see Crass in their prime. Yeah. I saw them 36 times. I followed them. I was devoted to that band. Yeah. They taught me so much. We talk about like where black clothing came from. Their yeah. uniform was black. I mean, Crass, you can go like into Soho and see like ripped clothing for two and a half grand. That's what their uniform was. But they... <laughs> They <laughs> wasn't costume tuna. We're getting out the garbage. Yeah. Dying clothes, black. I mean, that whole look really came from them, and their whole sense of altruism and their sense of presentation and the noise they made. Yeah. 
I love the Crest albums, the EPs. I saw them once. I got to see them at City Gardens in Trenton. You're very in the lucky. 80s. And uh, it was a fucking great show. Yeah, phenomenal. But, <laughs> you know, like talking about like the real deal. Yeah. Getting to see the real deal. 30, so you saw them like 36 times. So did you yeah. follow them around I England followed them at around. Time? When I was homeless, I used to follow Crest. Yeah. yeah. And so did you kind of, did you actually, when you followed the band, was there a, like other kids like yourself or yeah. young guys like there yourself? There was a lot of disparate that, kids. That it followed, followed them the around. And, it was, and, it was and, almost like, you know, there was a whole like. It's like a flock of people. It's like Dickensian. Yeah. You know, like homeless Dickensian children, yeah. punk rock kids following bands around the country. Yeah. It was, there was even kids that like would go like, come on the Crass tour and then go to the Ants tour and then go on the Killing Joke tour. Yeah. You know, and, and you follow the Clash or whatever. And whoever's touring, you'd kind of, because Britain's a very condensed country. Yes. And there's constantly music happening. Yeah. So, so you'd spin off and go see other bands play. But, you know, I usually stay with, with Crass. And yeah. I was always following those guys. Yeah. Really great band. That's interesting, too. What do you think about the thoughts that have come out recently about how that period of Thatcherism, at least in that period, because there was the dole, even people were yeah. reacting to, to her, her politics, mm. but that they... The laws back then did, did make it easier for man's, for people to start bands when they couldn't. I think jobs. so. I, I think in many ways because the environment was so oppressive, you had to go indoors and create your own, create your own voice. Yeah, and you had to find you know your authentic self. And I think because of that, yeah. in many ways, it was it was a very positive thing. Yeah, it was a very very positive thing. But we've always had that in the UK because even the weather is oppressive enough. Yeah, where you go indoors, that's yeah. I think is why you got all those great bands. Yeah. And especially in that time, because it seemed like there was something great. Seems like now hit. people are picking up banjos for some yeah. reason. I don't quite understand. <laughs> when did that happen? The thing that here's what I really take umbrage with: When did jocks start picking up guitars? <laughs> when did that happen? All of a sudden, there was this transitional shift where punk rockers all became like these jocks. You guys want to rock? You know, like let's let's press some. Let's let lift. Some, let's. I can bench press twice my own weight, and my neck is exploding rock music. When did that happen? I was like, I used to have a 28 waist and weigh about 130 pounds, dripping wet, and it was covered in makeup. And, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Now it's like, I can bench, pre- bench press twice my own weight. Now it's different. I mean, now, now I train jiu-jitsu and stuff, so yeah. I need to. Yeah. need to, like, if, in case we get into a fight with Mumford and Sons or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was a great. Ban- a banjo fight. Yeah, it was great to have you on today, man. It really was great to see you. You'll have to. Come when's back our gay porn? Again. When's our porn coming out? Well, our gay porn session. You weren't supposed to tell people no, about that. Yeah, I know, but it's like our third volume of. <laughs> yeah, it's only been available on hits. the underground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, listen. It was great having you, Ian. So cool. Pleasure. Man. You know, I love you. Yeah, I love you as well, and we'll Very have you much. back again soon. Always Thank you for having me. To. Ian Asbury of the Cult and many other things, of course, right here on the high. Yes, Matt Pinfield. This has been the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. For all things music, news, interviews, live events, and more, go to mtvhive.com.